you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 8 this morning. To Psalm 8. King Louis XIV began his reign over France at the age of four and continued on as king for the next 72 years. It is still considered the longest reign of any modern European monarch. Over time, however, you can imagine someone who was raised from such a young age to be the king over a country, he became intoxicated with power, even dubbing himself the great monarch and was often referred to as, even today, the sun king. He ruled with absolute authority, declaring, I am the state. And yet, as Stephen Lawson says in 1715, like every other human king, he abdicated the throne through death. Before he died, though, Louis XIV had laid out very specific plans for his own funeral, plans that would seek to magnify his greatness even in death before all of France. As history records, it was nothing short of spectacular. Held in a cathedral full of mourners paying their respects, he was laid out in a solid gold coffin lined with all manner of precious jewels. And to emphasize his greatness, a single candle was lit over the casket by which the rest of the cathedral was to be illuminated. Bishop Jean-Baptiste Massillon was tasked with giving the sermon, and as he rose to do so, he shocked the entire nation. For as he ascended to the pulpit, he reached down and extinguished the single flame representing the glory of the great monarch. And as the people gasped out into the darkness, he began his sermon with these four words, Only God is great. This morning, that's the message that we see from Psalm 8. But as we read it, that might not be obvious at first glance because what David shows is not just the greatness, but even the glory of humanity, of the human race. But as we will see, the, the greatness of humanity is meant to magnify not us, but God, the one who made us and has been gracious to us. Through the glory, though the glory of humanity is seen, the view that is meant to bring us to our knees in worship is of the greatness of God himself. So with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 8. I would encourage you to follow along as I read. The choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. 
As we've been making our way through the book of Psalms, the last several Psalms have been like a tunnel of sorrow and despair where David has wrestled with the effects of sin in this world, the effects of pain and difficulty and suffering. And here he emerges, as it were, out of that tunnel into the daylight, even coming through that difficulty saying, Behold the majestic name of the glorious and great God our King. In many ways, this psalm is unsurpassed as an example of what a great hymn should be. It celebrates both the glory and grace of God, recounting who He is, what He has done, relating us to Him, to the world around us. But it's meant to be more than just a great example. Psalm 8 is meant to be motivation. Motivation for our own praise of God. David does not want us to uh, read through this in an academic or an abstract way, David wants us to read through this psalm and to join him in believing and singing, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so as we begin thinking through that grid, how ought we ought not only to understand but respond to this psalm, we see first that we ought to praise the greatness of God's glory. We ought to praise the greatness of God's glory. David begins by addressing the Lord directly. In the last few weeks, we've talked a little bit about the difference between the word Lord as a title and as a name for God. And this is going to keep repeating throughout the Psalms, this issue. So what I want to do is begin by just spending a little extra time here unpacking the significance of this. So when we come to it in later Psalms, when you come to it reading the Psalms, whether next week or next year or on your deathbed, the reality, the, 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 the stark gravity of what is being conveyed here will still be real to you. In verse 1, your English translation most likely has the word Lord twice. The first in small capitals, the other in normal print. The first in small capitals is not actually the word Lord. It's actually the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name that He reveals to His people. Now, if you've grown up in church, particularly if you've grown up in church for a long time, then you're probably familiar with the name of God, Jehovah. It's the same word. It's the same name. Yahweh is just the more accurate pronunciation of the Hebrew. That name, of course, comes from Exodus. When, when God calls Moses to be his servant, to go and to be the deliverer, the redeemer of his people out of Israel. And Moses doesn't know who God is. And he says, well, when I come to Israel, what God should I say is sending me? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. And that word, that, that phrase, that, that translation, I am, is where we get the word, the, the name Yahweh, it's different from the word in Hebrew for Lord, as in the title, as a king or a master. Now, without going into a long discussion, for various reasons, the ancient peoples would often not say Yahweh when they were reading the text, but they would instead substitute the word Adonai, which is Lord. But understand that Yahweh is properly the name of God. So when you see other or hear about other names like El Shaddai or Jehovah Jireh or Adonai or such things, all of those things are wonderful, to, wonderful ways to address God, but they're not his name. They are titles given to him based upon who he has revealed himself to be in the context of his saving acts. Only Yahweh is the true name of God. Now, why is all that important? Well, think about it like this. Uh, in times past, in polite society, everyone was addressed as either a Mr. or a Mrs. or a Miss until that individual invited you to address them by their first and proper name. It was a sign of intimacy and friendship in the same way. 
when the God of the Bible invites you to worship Him, to become part of His people. It is a personal invitation. It is meant to be an invitation of intimacy and relationship. God is not some distant, only identifiable by a title that describes His personal work kind of God. He is inviting us to know Him even as we worship and serve Him. It is a privilege to know God, not just as the Lord, but as Yahweh, our Lord. So when David calls out at the beginning of the psalm, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it's not just an abstract, abstract declaration. It's not just the Lord who happens to be our Lord. No, this is Yahweh, the king over all of Israel. More than that, this is David's king. This is David's God. Yahweh is committed to him just as much as he had committed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How does David even know that, though? What has he seen and experienced to lead him to believe that? Well, he knows something of the greatness of God simply by being alive and looking around. You know, it's very possible today to kind of go through all of life with just this little tiny screen in front of your face. And I'm not against screens. I have too many screens in my life. That being said, the world around us is meant to be seen and observed and to lead us to a certain kind of response like David has here. Such as the greatness of his majestic name, David says that you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David says, from the clear skies and terrible storms to the nighttime view of the moon and the countless stars, when David gazed into the heavens, when he looked at creation around him, he saw the glory of God. Not just that God was there, but that he was glorious. He was beautiful to behold. He was majestic in his sovereignty over all things. The glory of God extends above the heavens to all of creation. Notice there is even a hint here, though, that not everything is right in the world. The contrast between the well-ordered, glorious creation is those that are seeking somehow to undermine or diminish the glory of God by their rebellion. They are called enemies of God rather than His servants. These are not His people, but those who oppose Him. Now, how does God deal with them? Differently than we would. Uh, if we had enemies, if we had opponents, what would we do? We would send out the muscle. Uh, we, we, would, we would engage the enemy. If we were God, we might even send lightning from heaven to RKO them out of nowhere. They didn't see it coming at all. Just kaboom, done. But according to David, how does God take care of his enemies? From where does he establish strength? Surprisingly, from those that are most helpless. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Does that literally mean babes and infants still wrapped in blankets, nursing from their mothers, that they will somehow overturn the evil intentions of the world? Maybe. But I think more generally, David is looking around, thinking of his own life experience, seeing how it is always the unexpected, especially the weak and the helpless, that God uses to display his strength to the nations. Consider this example from history that Dale Ralph Davis points out from the life of General Stonewall Jackson. In October 1854, Jackson's wife Ellie had given birth to a stillborn son. Not a good day. 
by any stretch of the imagination. However, during labor, the situation was made even worse as she suffered a hemorrhage that doctors were unable to stop, which means shortly after giving birth to a dead baby, she herself passed into the world to come. In a very short time, on a Sunday afternoon that was meant to be a day of joy, Jackson's entire world fell apart, leaving him utterly crushed. The very next day, he pins a letter to his sister, Laura, and he told her that he believed he could submit to anything if only God would strengthen him for it. When you see the context, he's not saying those with a kind of stiff upper lip mentality, but as one who is in great despair over his loss. And as he's pouring out his grief to his sister, right in the middle of the letter come these words. Oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God as well. Laura was not a believer. In the midst of this life-shattering event, Stonewall Jackson is saying, I give glory to God and I wish that you would as well. Davis comments, can you imagine anyone weaker in that moment? Here is a man beaten and crushed who nevertheless says, oh, that you could have him for your God. What defense does the suave, narrow-eyed agnostic have for that? Sometimes the mightiest weapon in God's arsenal is not argument, nor brilliance, nor eloquence, nor philosophy, but praise. And the humblest believer can use it. And so as we read Psalm 8, we should praise the greatness of God's glory. But second, we should also marvel at the display of God's grace. We should marvel at the display of God's grace. His grace is seen in two ways in this passage. First, we see it in His attentive care. His attentive care. Beginning at verse 3, David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In Isaiah 40, we're told that the Lord is the one who brings out the stars by their number, calling them by name. And it's by the greatness of His might and because He is strong in power that not one star is missing. I mean, you, you, uh, if you all are science geeks uh, and you look at space photography, there's another word that I hate because it always shows up on the photography pages. If you know what I'm talking about, then well done. If not, then just move on. But just saying... Uh, be aware if you go looking. If you see these pictures from the Hubble telescope, it is absolutely amazing. The number of stars in the universe number well into the billions at this point, according to, to what we can determine. And I love that in Isaiah 40, the prophet says, God knows them all by name. Not one of them is lost. And as Derek Kinder points out, when you read the passage like that, what you should see in the ordered universe that God has created is not somehow this remote almighty that stands apart from all things, but rather a God who has amazing attention to detail. In the same way as Isaiah 40 even here, notice that David doesn't say that it was by God's strong arm, a very common phrase in the Psalms, or even his mighty hand, another common phrase in the Psalms. It was not by a strong arm or a mighty hand in which he created all things. Notice he says, when I look to the heavens, I see the work of your fingers. What do you do with your fingers? Something intricate. 
When you, when, when you get down with the soldering, with a little soldering pen and some tweezers and you're putting together the circuit boards or uh, you've got the glasses on and you're working with the intricate gears of a watch of some kind. That's the kind of work that you're doing with your fingers that's described not just with arms or with hands. But notice with God who is so great and glorious that making stars across the span of the universe is considered intricate work, the work of His fingers. It's an amazing picture of a vast and glorious God, but at the same time, notice in the midst of that power and design and intricacy, He is mindful of humanity. God takes notice of us and it astonishes David. I see the work of your fingers and I wonder what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him. That says not only something about Yahweh, but also something about humanity. You know, when I was in college, I think it was in a philosophy class, there was this, uh, uh, this play that was uh, much talked about, I think because it had been used in a book uh, that had came out and was popular at the time, but there was this old play by uh, Samuel Beckett called Breathe that was explained and often used as the perfect illustration for a nihilistic worldview. If you don't know what that means, it simply means uh, a worldview, a way of seeing all of life as having no meaning. Nothing. There's no point. It's all just a great cosmic accident. And in the course of this play, very short play, stage lights come up very slowly as they fade, and at center stage is a big pile of trash. It's a big pile of garbage. And as the light begins to come on, you hear this, this piercing cry, almost like an infant being born. And then over the next 10 seconds, you hear this great, long, human inhaling breath. And the, the lights reach their pinnacle of brightness, not the fullness of brightness, but just the pinnacle for this play. And then they begin to fade back down and you hear this 10 second exhalation of breath. At which point in the end, you hear that same piercing cry, now not reminiscent of a newborn baby, but of a loved one screaming out at the death of another loved one. And the lights are done. The whole thing takes less than a minute. And the point that Beckett is trying to convey is this. Human life is trash. Human life is garbage. It is meaningless. There is no point. We are here today and gone tomorrow in a blip of the age of the cosmos and nobody cares. That was Beckett's nihilistic worldview. How different the worldview of David from the scriptures of one who knows Yahweh, his creator. He knows, he sees, he understands that God creates the universe with intentionality, with design, and also with uh, intention for care of humanity. I believe David probably has Genesis 1 and 2 banging around in his head as he's uh, producing this praise of God, perhaps on the hillside one night looking at the cosmos. Genesis 1 and 2 make it clear that we are made in the image of God. We are not merely superior primates that evolved from some primordial soup. We are men and women created by a divine command according to a divine plan. And unlike the rest of the creatures in God's world, we were fashioned after the pattern of God himself. Think about that. Let that stagger your mind for a minute. It doesn't make us equal with God. In fact, David says uh, that uh, he's mindful of man, even the son of man. 
Uh, if you've been on any of our two-year reading programs and you've plowed through Ezekiel, you know that more often than not, that is how God addresses Ezekiel. Son of man, speak and talk. And the point there is to draw this great contrast between God Almighty and this feeble, made-of-clay prophet who is the mouthpiece of God and yet there is an astronomical gap between his glory and the glory of God. So you have David emphasizing the frailty of humanity. Nevertheless, the Lord God is mindful of him. He is concerned for us and for our well-being. What an amazing display of grace from the king who created all things. But David goes further. He sees this grace in the crown that has been given to us. That's the second thing that we see. As we think about God's grace towards us, we see an authoritative crown. An authoritative crown. Notice the language of verse 5 and following. You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever pass along the paths of the sea. I love that. David is saying, you know, I, I know we don't know everything in the water. There's some stuff that's down there we've never seen, but whatever is going along down there, it's under the feet of your creation. Crowns, dominion, glory, and honor. What kind of imagery is this? It's the imagery of royalty. Remember in Genesis 1, God not only said, let us make man in our image, he also said, let them rule. And those opening chapters of the Bible, all the things that are mentioned in verses 7 and 8, the animals, the fish, the birds, all in those, that first chapter, are told to multiply and to fill the earth. But then God gets to Adam. He gets to Adam and Eve. And what does he say to them? Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take possession. Have dominion. Engage your reign over the rest of creation. While Yahweh is king over all the universe, he has given a portion of his authority and entrusted it to humanity. God has set up mankind as king over this world to care for his creation, to maintain it, to use it for his own good. In other words, he has given us the responsibility to govern this world even as God himself would govern it. God has created this amazing universe and has entrusted it to our care. We are those who are to exercise dominion over all things. Just as the owner of a field would employ a manager to take care of it, to till it, to cultivate it. The manager isn't equal to the owner but has found great favor in the sight of that man in order to be given such a great responsibility. Likewise, we should not derive our sense of authority over creation because we're smart enough or wiser, wise enough to figure it out, but rather we should remember that God has condescended to speak to us, to reveal to us that this was his plan from the beginning. The end result of all that thinking should be a life filled with awe, a life that marvels at the display of God's grace towards humanity. Our reflections should lead us to the same place as David at the end of this psalm. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. But there's more. There's more. As we think about this psalm, not just for what David says, but because of its implications, we should be led to trust in the assurance of God's gospel. That's the last thing that we want to see. By way of our response this morning, Psalm 8 should lead us to trust in the assurance of God's gospel. David has exalted God because of his glory and grace. He's given us an expansive meditation that spans the vast majority 
or the, rather the vast majesty seen in the universe and still finds humanity as the object of God's loving care. But twice now he's brought to our attention a problem that he never resolves in the psalm, namely the problem of sin. It shows up at least twice in Psalm 8. First, we see it in, in verse 2. So we consider that though God has set his glory above the heavens, who are these enemies? Who are these who still oppose the Lord God? Has his glory and strength even now been so ordained that every enemy, every avenger has been thwarted? Not at all. Moreover, we think of these last few verses where David has given us an amazing picture of humanity's dominion over creation. Have all things really been put under our feet? James Johnson in his commentary says, we, all, we ought only watch a rodeo to know the answer to that. The raging bull is not under anyone's feet. It is its own master. More seriously, there is much wickedness and evil that still seems to reign over us in the world. From terrorists establishing their rule with the sword to political imbeciles who style themselves as the savior of our nation to tragedies like car wrecks and cancer. All of them are sinful and rebellious in different ways against God's good design for his people at this moment. We do not have full dominion. So what do we do with this? Is David right or isn't he? Well, we are the only ones to think about this. The author of Hebrews thought about this. And in Hebrews 2, he is meditating, he's thinking about Psalm 8, even as he talks about the person and work of Christ. And the reality is, though we do not yet see the fullness of Psalm 8, realize in our lives, we do see Jesus. We see him as the fulfillment of this song, which in turn gives us hope. It gives us assurance that one day it will be fully fulfilled in our lives. Think again about verses five through six with Jesus in mind. David says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. For us, this passage speaks to the raising up of our dignity and worth, but for Jesus, it was a condescension. Though eternal God, who made all things, including the host of heaven, God the Son took on the flesh of humanity and was made a little lower than the angels. In that humbled state, he lived among us and for us. He was obedient to God the Father's plan to save a people for himself, even when it meant dying on a cross. Such a sacrifice was necessary because all of us are sinful. Look, just because we're not out there joining ISIS or openly thumbing our noses at God doesn't mean that, that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we deserve heaven. It doesn't mean that we're automatically saved. That's not the way it works. Because those first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They stood as our representatives before God. And now their sin has been passed on to us. Not just their guilt, but also their propensity. They're bent towards sin. So that now we have corrupted hearts. We have souls that are bent towards God, away from Him, embracing sin. We stand as His enemies. We're not holy, but Jesus is. And He bridges the gap for us to bring us to God that we might live as we were intended to. For Jesus' obedience to God's will, he was crowned with glory and honor. He was raised back to life and eventually exalted back to the glory of heaven where he was given dominion over the whole world such that God put all things under his feet. Even now, King Jesus is ruling and reigning, slowly, patiently bending all things towards his will such that one day his people, the church, might reign with him as a kingdom and priest to our God. 
David, Car David uh, rather, D.A. Carson says, by his mission, by his identification with us, and by his death, Jesus becomes the first human being to be crowned with such glory and honor as he brings many sons, even a new humanity, to glory. Read Philippians 2, read Ephesians 1. This is, this is the great hope of the gospel, that Jesus has not only conquered our enemies of sin, death, and hell, but he has risen victorious and now made it possible for us to be victorious when our lives are united to his by faith. If you remember your school geography classes during the Middle Ages, there was much speculation as to whether or not there was a route from Europe to India down around the southern continent of Africa. Many thought there was, but no one knew for sure because no one had been able to make that journey. Because of severe weather and storms on that part of the world, all of the previous attempts had failed. Ships had sunk, lives had been lost. And so the very tip of the southern continent was known as the Cape of Storms. Nonetheless, in 1498, Vasco da Gama proved it was possible to leave Europe around Africa and make the journey safely to India. As he returned from that voyage, it was impossible to doubt any longer that there indeed was a way that existed around the southern Cape of Africa and there, to India, and therefore it was renamed the Cape of Good Hope. As Michael Green points out, that's the point of Hebrews 2. David's words in Psalm 8 are no fantasy of wishful dreaming. No, we have not yet fully passed into glory to the degree that all things are under our feet. Jesus has. He has gone on before us. He has opened the way for us. In our place and on our behalf, He has overcome death and is exalted at the right hand of God. And therefore, He makes it possible that one day we will reign with Him and all things will be under our feet. The perfect man, the ultimate king, Jesus himself already enjoys the fulfillment of Psalm 8, thus giving us now the assurance that one day we will as well by faith in him. Therefore, as we stand back and consider all these things, not just what David saw, but now what we see as those who are part of the new covenant, how much more ought we to be able to proclaim, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we pray that that word of praise would not just be a word, a phrase, a verse on our lips, but Father, it might spring from the greatest depths of our heart, that we might be able to see you, the great God in heaven, who's only created us, but also redeemed us by the blood of his own son, who has shown great care in our creation, great trust by giving us authority. And even when we failed, even when we broke that trust, you were still gracious to us and you brought us to yourself. Father, for all these things and so much more, we give you thanks and praise. And we ask that our lives would be evidence of our belief and our confidence in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.